I am delighted that Christmas I can have our good friend, Francis O'Gorman, on Church and Culture. I feel like you listeners probably feel like Francis is your friend, just as I feel he is mine. I've talked to him so many times and always come away renewed and refreshed and a little bit smarter. But let me remind you that he was Saintsbury Professor of English Literature at the University of Edinburgh. He is really regarded as one of the world's experts on all things Victorian, all the literature, the culture, and so forth, but especially the work of John Ruskin. But to show you how he's hard to categorize, he just published from Oxford last month, Emily Bronte Selected Writings. So he knows a lot about literature that perhaps in your mind you don't think of as Victorian, but sort of 19th century. He's been on the show many times. We've discussed his book on education, liberalism and education, and his book on forgetfulness, the making of modern culture of amnesia. So Francis, welcome back to Church and Culture. Thank you very much, Stuart. It's a very great pleasure, as it's always is, to talk to you. Well, you have put together a delightful list of music that we're going to listen to. You're also going to read us, when we get to it, the Rossetti poem in the bleak midwinter, as well as listen to a setting of it, a traditional setting. But you're going to have to tell us why you chose a hymn called Dancing Day, or is it an anthem, a Christian anthem, Dancing Day, to start with? Okay, thank you. It's curious, isn't it? I was thinking about this over the last couple of days, how personally attached one gets to uh, Christmas music. I think, speaking personally, in a slightly different way from, let us say, Easter music. And it seems to me to um, adhere um, in, a, in a different way, it's a bit, sort of attached to childhood and to some very early memories. I find that rather intriguing, and I haven't really probed that deeply enough. And, and so these suggestions um, about Christmas music are, are really very, very personal, uh, and I'm not going to talk about too much about the personal dimension to them, but they're, they're definitely there. So, so my, my first choice is, is, um, is a setting of some... Huh, what what's usually called in in English hymnals or uh, anthem books or power books traditional words, um, which means I think nobody really knows where they come from. Um, these words are possibly 16th century. Tomorrow shall be my dancing day, and they're set to music in probably their most uh, the most famous version. Um, by the British composer John Gardner, who died in 2011. Um, he was for um, some time director of music um, after Gustav Holt and Herbert Howell. John but, Gardner was a darn good composer. Well, it is absolutely fantastic, isn't it? So um, what you get here is some rhythmic vitality produced really by syncopation. Sometimes with a tambourine, sometimes with a snare drum. I, I, I think these must have been optional in Gardner's score. Um, and the words are unusual because they're, they're in the voice of Jesus. Jesus is telling us about his own life. 
and they have a um, government does something here which I think is really captivating, which is to give us a sense of dance um, uh, and being so completely memorable because I think the music and the words seem to have some kind of symbiotic relationship which just makes it um, for the listener it's extraordinary coherence well, let's let's listen to uh, Edward Gardner's setting of Dancing Day. I think everyone will recognize it and enjoy it. Certainly a joyful anthem for the Christmas season that we're in, Francis. Uh, it, it's it sort of immediately wants to make you dance. I guess that's the point. Yes, exactly right. Uh, and it, it, it's an interesting conceit, isn't it, about Jesus' life as a dance? I suppose I think whether you, you have this in 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 the in the U.S. It's a very popular. Um, well, sort of evangelical song called uh, a hymn called "The Lords of the Dance." I don't. Oh yes, I like that. Um, I like that song. It's it, it, it's very catchy, isn't it? And yeah, it, it, yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's it's a sort of I think for me, it, it, I don't know of a later version of that of that trope of Jesus's life as a dance. Well, tell us about our next piece entitled There Is No Rose. Yes, thank you. Um, I think it, John Gardner wrote many, many pieces um, and so did John Hubert, who died in 2019. Um, but <laughs> they're composers who certainly for in the UK and 
among choral church musicians tend to be known for quite a small number of pieces. Gardner for tomorrow should be my dancing day. And John Zuber, who's born in South Africa but lived for many, many years in Birmingham in, in the UK, um, is known for choral music people for this miniature There Is No Rose of Such Virtue. Um, and uh, and his vibrant, very different uh, piece called Torches. Um, there is no rose. Is um, an exquisite little piece, which um, I I I I met uh, John Hubert once, and I I know his daughter, and um, Anna, his daughter, said that. Um, he wrote this in 1954 at the request of Novello, uh, the publisher. Um, and he wrote it while on the staff of the music department at the University of Hull. Um, he had, while living in a flat subsequently occupied by Philip Larkin, which is a curious able Um And it's, um, uh, it's the most exquisite uh, piece uh, for SATV, with an, what might look on paper rather angular melody, but actually is fluent um, and fluid in, 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 in performance. Um, it's got a sort of, sort of empty richness about it. It's kind of austere fullness, which is instantly attractive. And it's maintained its place, certainly in the UK, um, in in absolutely mainstream uh, sacred music for this time of year. Well, he, uh, Francis Stopford, was appointed director of music at a church in Bronxville, New York. I lived in Bronxville for five years. Unfortunately, I missed him. <laughs> so <laughs> let's uh, listen to uh, Philip Stopford's setting of There Is No Rose.
such a beautiful setting, Francis, of There Is No Rose by Jean Joubert. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Um, yes, he, he was, um, uh, for a very long time, he was senior lecturer in music at the University of Birmingham in the West Midlands in, in the UK, um, having previously held a, a position in, um, uh, in, in Hull. Um, and he, his output was really very considerable. Um, I think three symphonies, four concertos, several operas, um, all of which he scrupulously uh, recorded in his, in his notebook, in his immaculate handwriting. It's a lifelong commitment to composing. He wasn't a performer, so far as I, I know. He, he didn't have a career as a soloist or anything like that. He was a, he was a, um, a, a composer through, through and through. Um, and, uh, his, um, sense of line, I think, of unexpected, slightly angular, but nonetheless, uh, rather compelling line is, is very notable. I, I think he ought to be better known than he is, really. I really think that's somebody we should also think about featuring uh, sometime, because I remember liking his symphonies very much, and I see that he wrote operas on Silas Marner, un, Under Western Eyes, and Jane Eyre, uh, and among, among his five operas. So he's a very interesting guy. Yes, yes. I, I don't know the operas, and they, they, they're rather challenging texts to set, aren't they? So, um, yes, it would be interesting to know more about those. Well, I think setting Heathcliff is itself a yeah. challenge. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, let's move on to the great Bach. What have you chosen for us? Well, um, uh, for me, just speaking personally for a moment, um, Although this is always in the depth of Advent, um, my sense of Christmas um, always begins for me by listening to Bach's um, uh, Oratorium, the, the Christmas Oratorio. It isn't really an oratorio, it's actually six uh, cantatas put together, um, first performed in, in Leipzig in 1736. Uh, and then pretty much forgotten until the middle of the 19th century. Um, and each of the six cantatas takes a different uh, liturgical moment in the Christmas season, starting with Christmas Day and ending with um, uh, the adoration of the Magi, the Epiphany. Um, and it's very much, well, the first oratorio, um, it's very much back in his sort of... Um, Public celebratory mood with with um, Hosanna, with a brass and pins, um, and the opening chorus um, has this splendid word in, in, in German, Jatzet, Krolocket, Auf Kreisex Gitarre, rejoice, rejoice, arise and praise the day. And my goodness me, I, this is just a sovereign injection of baroque, supercharged energy, um, which, 
uh, just makes me personally feel that the Christmas season has begun. And hearing it live, which I've had the privilege of doing several, several times, it's just, it just wants to uh, grip the seat one's sitting on because it's such an exhilarating burst of Christmas colour. Let's listen to it. Uh, this is formed by John Elliott Gardner, correct? Yes. Let's listen. Just rousingly beautiful. Thank you for choosing that for us, Francis. Now, our next composer, Peter Warlock, is special to me. That's his pseudonym. He was Philip Hazeltine, but he was very close to my beloved Frederick Delius. Ah, yes, indeed. 
tell us about this this particular Christmas anthem, Bethlehem Down. Yes. Um, well, uh, one couldn't get much further away from um, uh, the opening chorus of the Christmas Oratorio. And, and of course, this is a piece that, um, which I, I noticed has just been uh, included possibly as a hymn, um, to, in the uh, revised English hymnal, um, which has just been published in, in the UK. Um, uh, it's rather, uh, it's an SATB four part, um, anthem carol, really. Um, and there's a rather sort of uncomfortable story behind it, which is, um, that, um, people like Philip Hazeltine and, and the poet Bruce Blunt, according to the narrative, um, decided that they wanted to make some money for some drinking over Christmas in 1927, um, an immortal carouse, said Blunt. Um, and Warlock wrote this piece very quickly, um, two words written also quickly by Blunt. Um, and one would think that the result of that kind of odd collaboration under such circumstances would not be adequate. Um, but actually, what what comes out is Peter Warlock's probably most long-lasting and much-loved um, Christmas piece, um, which uh, is uh, noticeable partly because of the humility of of its words, um, and also because of its rather haunting modal harmony. So, it feels at once modern, uh, but also embedded within a past tradition of of writing. So it's got something of a sort of lingering antiquity about it, um, which, uh, again, I, I think it's remarkably captivating. Yeah, music critic Wilford Mellor, one of my favorite writers on music, called it a small miracle. Uh, so let's listen to Peter Warlock's Bethlehem Down.
That's just stunningly exquisite. And I'm talking with Francis O'Gorman about Christmas music. We're going to take a short break, and I'll be right back. back with Francis O'Gorman, the scholar of all things Victorian, especially of the work of John Ruskin. We're talking about Christmas music. You may recall that Francis is an accomplished organist, and therefore he knows a great bit about choral music. And the next piece that he chose is its really surprising to me because I didn't notice when he sent it to me that it was by a composer named Philip Wilby. He sent it to me about three weeks ago. Well, in the meantime, I've heard some music by Philip Wilby, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm a big fan. And so here we are. We're going to play this anthem or hymn, whatever we want to call it. And Francis, tell us a little bit about Philip Wilby before we hear his word made flesh. Okay, thank you. Um, I, I'm delighted that you, you, you found his music. That's wonderful. He was my colleague um, in, in the University of Leeds, where I was for 16 years. Um, a very... Um, uh, a composer with an enormous range, and some of his work for brass bands, uh, for instance, is, is internationally uh, famous. But um, a very... Serious Christian and um, writer of sacred music, um, and this piece, the word made flesh, which I think was written in 1987 for Alan Fawcett and the, um, the choir of Bradford Cathedral, um, set words by Ben Johnson, um, which is sort of a depiction of a nativity scene, and I think what you hear in this piece, is what Phil does absolutely brilliantly, as you say, which is to keep a, a, a certain set of themes going. In this case, it's the most prominent one is the organ accompaniment, which keeps returning to the same motif. As, as a texture of the music, thickens and thickens and thickens, and 
until at the end, there's a very rich um, uh, SATB texture with a soaring soprano above it. And I must say, when, when I've had the privilege of doing this live as an organist, it really sends shivers down one's spine. It's so moving. Well, let's listen to Philip Wilby's Word Made Flesh.
I love that. And uh, that's Philip will be uh, word made flesh. And if anybody wants to hear another piece, I'm going to tell you what it is to listen to. It's called uh, Unholy Sonnets, number four. If God survives us, will his kingdom come? Unholy Sonnets, number four. That is a stunner. So try not to forget to listen to that, however you can. Uh, well, we, we've come to sort of our centerpiece, Francis, the poem by Rossetti in the bleak midwinter. And I think you are going to read it to us before we played the setting of it. Yes, I, 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 I can do. Um, um, I mean, I just, just a couple of observations about, about this. Is, um, one is this question, really, and, and another is just, just an observation. The, the observation is that it's one of the texts, and um, that certainly for the UK and Northern Europe, I think, has persuaded many people that Jesus' birth was in a sort of Northern um, Hemisphere, um, midwinter, <laughs> um, and that there was an awful lot of snow around and so forth. Um, it, it's given us a certain sort of picture, um, a Christmas, Christmas card image, um, of, of Christmas. It sort of anglicised it, which I find rather interesting. Um, the other thing is that, although it's extremely popular, um, it does contain some rather baffling theology. Um, uh, so particularly our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth the same. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. Um, uh, Christina is actually seems slightly to have um, left behind anything that might look like Orthodox Christian theology there, or certainly scriptural, um, anything with a scriptural basis. So it, it, it's a slightly odd piece in, in that respect, but it has some of the most exquisite lines, I think, of any Christmas carol in English. And so the words are, in, in the bleak midwinter, frosty winds made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter. Long ago. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and then, a breast full of milk and a manger of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to rain. In the bleak midwinter, a stable face of Christ, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim throng the air, but only his mother, in her maiden bliss, worships the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, 
with my heart. Uh, well, thank you for reading that. It's a perfect introduction to the Gustav Holst mm. setting from 1906 of Rossetti's words. Let's listen to it sung by Tenebrae.
Tenebrae sings beautifully. Gustav Holst's setting of In the Bleak Midwinter with words by Rossetti. Uh, Francis, do you prefer this version or the version by Harold Dark? Um, uh, well, I, I think that the dark setting has a particular kind of resonance, doesn't it, with, a, with that, those beautiful, beautiful solos. Um, and I, I, just speaking personally, I know from Michael Cornhill, uh, where dark was back to music for quite a long time. So I'm sort of very attached for, for entirely personal reasons to the dark setting. Well, next um, year we'll use that setting. <laughs> God willing, we're both, we're both here to talk about it. Now this next yeah. choice was mine. Yeah. Because it's my favorite recording of any carol. The wow. carol in English is whence is that goodly fragrance flowing? It's from a 17th century traditional Christmas carol. Would you mind pronouncing the French title of it for us? So it's it's known uh, it's best known in its French original French version, "Telle incroyable." Um, it's translated usually exactly as you say, which I I, I think is a Another one of these traditional ones, but it's dated at least back to the to the seventeenth century. Um, and I, I suppose certainly in the UK, um, it's known like so many Christmas music through a version for uh, soloist and SATB choir, uh, uh, written by Sir David Wilcox for a long time, dance music here in Cambridge. Uh, at King's College, um, so it, it's very, it's very familiar. Usually, in its English translation um, to, to to UK audiences, but I'm I'm taking from what you say that to also the US. Yes, we're going to hear it sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Okay. Well, they, now you they're a huge chorus, but listen to yeah. what they do with it in terms of slimming down sort of the size of the sound as the song progresses and particularly the moment when it becomes a cappella, which I think is is magic. So let's listen to the Mormon Tabernacle choir singing, Whence is this goodly fragrance flowing?
Whence is that goodly fragrance flowing? The Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Francis, I need you to say something. I'm kind of choked right now. Uh, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, it, it, the, um, the shape of those phrases to say something is not them just so beautiful, but my goodness me, what a choir. Um, I mean, as you say, it's enormous, isn't it? And yet, yeah. somehow it gets something of a um, chamber choir effect. Yes. I, don't, yes. I don't know how they do that. I mean, the other thing I, I would just want, I wanted to say about that is that the, the Mormon Tabernacle organist, Richard Elliott, of course, does his um, annual famous, now uh, internationally famous, improvisation, I think which he starts working on sort of eight months beforehand. Um, which are which are all, all on YouTube, and if, if you're mm-hmm. listening to it, no, he's a sort of successor to Joe Fox, really. Um, and um, if, if you just want one to to listen to him, just marvel mm-hmm. at his wit. Um, the one on the twelfth days of Christmas is absolutely oh, that would be fun. You know, Francis, <laughs> I think there are some recordings where the spirit comes down and touches everyone and I think that is one of them I mean there are many such that I could point to but this is one of them yes I I do agree with that I I absolutely understand that so Francis it's so good of you to share yourself with us again on church and culture and bring your vast knowledge of music choral music and organist, organ playing, uh, as well as poetry. And I look forward to talking to you again in the near future about something we both find interesting and glorious as we find this music. Well, that would just be marvelous to you. Thank you very much for inviting me again. And Happy New Year to you. And, and to you and to everybody listening. All of you are listening. I'll be back in a moment with another great guest. <laughs> 